Clean up on aisle 1600. The lead starts right now. From Russia to election legitimacy, President Joe Biden being forced to clarify today some of his comments after that nearly two-hour freewheeling news conference. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is just moments away from joining me live. New clues about the letter Ivanka Trump received today. The January 6th committee revealing some interesting details as it calls on Donald Trump's daughter to testify. And good news for parents of children under five. Dr. Anthony Fauci hinting that vaccines for America's youngest could be available sooner than expected. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today in our politics lead and the White House's aggressive attempts to clean up, shall we say, comments from President Biden's nearly two-hour marathon news conference yesterday. Marking one year in office, President Biden touted some legislative victories, acknowledged nationwide fatigue with COVID, and he admitted more progress needs to be made with the pandemic and the economy. But two specific comments are getting the most attention including clarification from his communications team. On the midterm elections, the White House now says that President Biden was not suggesting that the 2022 midterm elections could be illegitimate, even though that's clearly what the president's words suggested. On Russia, President Biden today said that Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, will pay a heavy price if Russia invades Ukraine. This comes after yesterday when he suggested there could be fewer consequences if Russia stages a, quote, minor incursion. We're going to talk to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about all of this in just a moment. But first, CNN's Jeff Zeleny starts us off with the fallout. Uh, I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. President Biden opening his second year in office today with a blunt message for Russia and an urgent act of clarifying and cleanup. Let there be no doubt at all that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. The White House scrambling to clear up the impression from the president's marathon press conference on Wednesday that a minor Russian invasion into Ukraine may not receive the full weight of retaliation by the U.S. and NATO allies. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do it. Those words sparking a fierce response from Ukrainian President Zelensky, who feared Biden gave Russia a green light to invade. We want to remind the great powers that there are no minor incursions and small nations, he said. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell blasted Biden's gaffe. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion. Does this mean President Biden will not actually authorize the tough response that his own administration officials have spent weeks, weeks promising? At the White House, it was intended to be the beginning of a new chapter, with the president digging in on his landmark achievement. Now let me turn to the topic of the day. The bipartisan infrastructure law now being implemented. But Press Secretary Jen Psaki also clarifying Biden's comment about the legitimacy of the midterm elections, saying he was not trying to cast doubt on the outcome, simply pointing out the need to protect elections. He was also explaining that the results would be illegitimate if states do what the former president asked them to do in more than a half a dozen states in 2020, uh, after the 2020 uh, election, toss out ballots and overturn results after the fact. The White House also trying to chart a new course on the president's stalled legislative priorities a smaller Build Back Better plan, and a potential compromise on election reform. Going forward, aides say the president will not be leading the talks. 
He wants to spend more time out in the country and less time behind closed doors negotiating. And that is one of the things that President Biden said yesterday when we asked what he would like to do differently in his second year. Jake, he said he would like to leave the bubble of the White House and spend more time out in the country. We've heard many presidents, of course, say that before. We will see what President Biden decides to do with that. No trip scheduled this week. I'm told they could come as soon as next. All right, Jeff Zeleny at the White House, thanks so much. Here to discuss White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. So, Jen, this morning you said that President Biden was not casting doubt on the potential legitimacy of the 2022 election if those election reform bills are not passed. And, of course, they they failed to pass. I just want to play exactly what the president said yesterday. I'm not saying it's going to be legit. It's the increase... And the prospect of being illegitimate is in direct proportion to us not being able to get these these reforms passed. I'm not saying it's going to be legit. I mean, he's not saying that it's going to be legitimate. That's pretty clear. Well, here's what his intention was, Jake, and what his intention was not. He was not trying to predict that the 2022 elections would not be legitimate. Quite the opposite. His view, and he's told us this privately a lot, is that in 2020, the American people rose to the moment. We had COVID. People were trying to suppress the vote. They still turned out in record numbers. What we also, though, need to be clear-eyed about, and this is what he was trying to convey last night, is that there were efforts in 2020 by the former president and his supporters to attempt to overturn the outcome of the election. We need to be clear-eyed about that possibility or about the effort to try to do that. We need to educate voters. We need to make sure they know what their rights are. And that's what our focus is going to be on moving forward. He was directly tying the legitimacy of the November elections with the election reform bills that failed last night. Uh, He was asked a clear question. He said it depends. Take a listen. If this isn't passed, do you still believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? Well, it all depends on uh, whether or not we're able to make the case to the American people that some of this is being set up to try to alter the outcome of the election. I mean, isn't the correct answer, if this isn't passed, you believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and legitimate? Isn't the correct answer, yes, it will be fairly conducted and legitimate? That is his view, Jake. But we also have all lived through, you've done extensive reporting on, the attempts to change the outcome in 2020. We know voters need to be clear-eyed and need to be aware and educated about what is facing them. And we, the president believes they're going to rise to the moment. But well, we have more work to do. That's also what he was trying to convey in educating voters and making sure voter protections are up. With The Department of Justice doubled their voter protection uh, funding. There's more we need to do, and we're going to work with states to do exactly that. That was what he was trying to convey last night. So I get that there are efforts on the state level. This is also what the president was trying to tie it to. Efforts on the mm-hmm. state level to make it more difficult to vote. Some of that is no doubt born from the big lie. Some of it is nefarious. Some of it is election officials saying we're not in the middle of the pandemic like we were in November 2020. We don't need to do everything like we did. But I guess my, my bigger question is, if we're saying that there's no election uh, that's legitimate if there are efforts to suppress the vote, then when has there ever been a legitimate election in this country? Trying to suppress American votes has been going on since the founding of this country. That that's not what we're saying, Jake. People should be confident in the protections that we are going to continue to enforce. 
but also we know it's not long ago history. It is recent history sure. when the former president tried to overturn the outcome. That is different than the effort to suppress the vote. We need to fight against both. We need to ensure we're using every tool at our disposal. Uh, obviously, a lot of those would be through the Democratic National Committee, uh, and a lot of those are going to be through local efforts. And that's what the president was, uh, was attempting to speak to. But he didn't say the elections are going to be legitimate and I'm going to be there making sure that they are legitimate and we're going to fight and you need to turn out to vote. I mean, he basically he basically refused to say that definitively that they're going to be legitimate. Vice President Harris today also with Savannah Guthrie also refused to say that the results will be legitimate. She, she pivoted to saying, quote, we as America cannot afford to allow this blatant erosion of our democracy and in particular the right of all Americans who are eligible to vote to have un, uh, to have access to the the ballot unfettered. So I hear what you're saying, but you do not seem to be on the same page as the president and vice president. I've spoken with the president about this extensively. I speak on his behalf. He is not questioning the legitimacy of the 2022 elections, but it is also his responsibility and the vice president's too to be very candid and clear eyed and communicate with the American people about what is at risk and what they need to ensure they know what their rights are and what the former president attempted to do in 2020. And we can't forget and stop talking about that. Moving on to, to Russia and Ukraine, I want to get your reaction to what the Ukrainian president uh, Zelensky said. He said he's, he's clearly not happy with President Biden's comments, his suggestion that a minor incursion by Russia into Ukraine uh, might prompt a lesser response and less NATO unanimity than if he scales a full-scale invasion. Uh, invasion. Earlier today, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, tweeted, quote, we want to remind the great powers that there are no minor incursions in small nations, just as there are no minor casualties and little grief from the loss of loved ones. I say this as the president of a great power. Are there any plans for President Biden to talk to President Zelensky directly? Uh, he's talked to him a couple times in the last few weeks, and he may in the future. I have nothing to predict for you at this moment. But as you know, our Secretary of State is on the ground in Europe. He just spent some time with the Ukrainians a couple days ago with his European co counterparts this morning. He's talking to the Russians tomorrow. And we've been in touch at a very senior level uh, from senior officials with Ukrainian leaders just today. They know where the president stands. And the president reiterated again this morning, if, they, uh, if the Russians move into Ukraine, if they move militarily into Ukraine, there will be severe consequences. We also know, Jake, and you've covered this extensively, too, that back in 2014 and since then, they've used a number of tactics, whether it's cyber or the little green men, uh, people who are members of the military who are not in uniform moving into Ukraine. There are a range of tools at our disposal as well. And we are, let me be clear, we are very unified with NATO. We've been working to ensure we're unified. We are unified. And you've heard a number of those leaders speak very publicly about their intention to act should Russia invade. Well, you've called the, the movement of troops across the border an invasion, but noting that something like a cyber attack might be considered a minor incursion. That, doesn't that give Putin, or how do you respond to the Ukrainian officials that our reporters on the ground in Ukraine spoke with that said, basically, President Biden gave a green light for Putin just to, to stage a quote-unquote minor incursion? That's absolutely not what our intention was or not the message we've sent. The president, most importantly, has sent to President Putin. I'd also note this morning, Jake, that we announced a number of sanctions through the Treasury Department of officials who have been spreading misinformation from Russia into Ukraine. 
Uh, we've also provided more security assistance, defense assistance than and than any year in history over the last year. So we are delivering and we are helping support them and and holding putting to account even before they invade to make that clear. But it is different. There are different tactics that the Russians use. We've seen that in the past. We've been very vocal about that in the last couple of weeks. Misinformation, false flags. We all need to be eyes wide open about that. And we have a range of tools to respond to that. And we will do that in a coordinated way with our partners and allies should they act. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki earning her paycheck this week. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Donald Trump's daughter just got an invitation from the January 6th committee, and its letter is revealing some interesting clues. We have some new CNN reporting next. Then, breaking news, we're just getting new details about the tricky and potentially illegal moves made by Rudy Giuliani and other members of Trump's inner circle to stop peaceful transfer of power and Joe Biden taking office. Stay with us. Breaking news in our politics lead sources are revealing to CNN extensive efforts by Rudy Giuliani and other Trump campaign officials to overturn President Biden's legitimate election win, allegedly by placing fake electors in several states that Trump clearly definitively lost. Let's bring in CNN's Pamela Brown, who's breaking the story. Pamela, what are you learning about the actions of Giuliani and other Trump allies? Yeah, and it's worth underlining what you just said, Jake. These are the states that Trump definitively lost. And now we are learning several Trump campaign officials led by Rudy Giuliani supervised efforts back in December of 2020 to put forward fake electors from seven states that Trump lost. This is according to three sources with direct knowledge of the scheme, talking to me and several members of the uh, reporting team, Marshall Cohen, um, Zachary Cohen, and Dan America. Members of Trump's campaign team were far more involved in the plan than previously known. These sources are telling us And what's key here, Jake, is that this plan served as a major part of the overall scheme to overturn the 2020 election results. Back when Congress counted the electoral votes on January 6th, you had Giuliani and these campaign officials organizing the minutia, the details of this process on a state-by-state level. One source telling us there were several calls between Trump campaign officials and state GOP operatives to organize the plan, and that Giuliani participated in at least one of those calls and and to talk about what they did. They they were organizing ways to fill these elector slots, securing meeting rooms and state houses for fake electors to meet on December 14th of 2020. They sent around drafts of the fake certificates that ended up being sent to the National Archives. Trump and some of his top advisors publicly encouraged the alternate elector scheme in the seven states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Arizona, Wisconsin, Nevada, and New Mexico. However, behind the scenes, now we're learning Giuliani and Trump campaign officials actively put that plan into motion. Now, at a recent event held by a local GOP organization, one of those fake electors from Michigan boasted that the Trump campaign directed the whole operation. Take a listen. We fought for investigations into every part of the election we could. He fought for um, a team of people to come and testify in front of the committee. We fought to see the electors. Um, The Trump campaign asked us to do that. I'm under a lot of scrutiny for that today. And, Jake, I spoke to a source close to former Vice President Pence who said 
Uh, Pence was aware of the scenario. There was concern in Pence's circle that this kind of scenario could play out. And that is why in that statement that he released before the certification on January 6th, he was very specific in the slate of electors uh, that he would be able uh, to certify and the process by which that would happen in order to avoid a situation where these fake electors would be sent. And, and of course, the Trump campaign at that time wanted him to replace the legitimate ones with these fake ones. I mean, I guess lawyers will weigh in, but I cannot imagine how that's legal. Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also in our politics lead today, the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection officially requested a meeting with Ivanka Trump. Committee members say they have firsthand testimony that the former first daughter was at the White House on January 6th and asked her father at least twice to do what he could to stop that violent riot on the Capitol. CNN's Jamie Gangel joins us now live. Jamie, what exactly does the committee want from Ivanka Trump? Look, they want to speak to Ivanka Trump because, as you said, she's a first-hand witness. We know she was with her father on January 6th. During the riot, senior White House advisors ask her to intervene. They, they, nobody else can do anything. They ask Ivanka to intervene. What's interesting about the letter, Jake, is the committee has laid out specific testimony from former National Security Advisor to Mike Pence. This is Keith Kellogg, who's considered a Trump loyalist, but he has been cooperating with the committee. Here's the exact wording the committee has released from his testimony. So you thought that Ivanka could get her father to do something about it. Kellogg, to take a course of action. Question. He didn't say yes to Mark Meadows or Kelly McEnany or Keith Kellogg, but he might say yes to his daughter. Answer from Keith Kellogg. Exactly right. And, and Jake, if you continue, you have to read this letter closely. It's, it has so many details and footnotes in it. There are a couple of other sentences that jump out. Quote, the select committee wishes to discuss the part of the conversation you, meaning Ivanka Trump, observed between President Trump and Vice President Mike Pence on the morning of January 6th. So apparently the committee believes Ivanka Trump is a first-hand witness to her father pressuring Pence to overturn the election. The letter goes on to ask whether Ivanka Trump has any other information about her father pressuring Pence to take action that, quote, would violate the Constitution or would otherwise be illegal specifically asking, and again, this is a quote from the letter, did you discuss those issues with any member of the White House counsel's office? To your knowledge, were any such legal conclusions shared with President Trump? Jake, I I don't think we can underscore enough how specific these questions are that the committee is revealing in this letter. And From talking to sources familiar with the investigation, I am told this is not a fishing expedition, that the committee has documents and testimony to support her uh, asking her these very specific questions. And Jamie, the details in the letter make it pretty clear that members of the committee are very focused on the exact timeline of what happened on January 6th. Correct. Uh, Especially about the White House being aware the riot had become violent. So they lay out a timeline. It mentions that at 1.49 p.m., the Metropolitan Police declared it a riot. Then the committee lays out that about 35 minutes later, former President Trump tweeted about Mike Pence at 2.24. And this is that tweet we know where he let supporters know quite 
quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. And what's interesting is in the letter, the committee then sets out uh, that the violence, uh, it's, it's connecting the dots between Trump's words and more violence, because they include here two quotes from rioters. So if you read the letter closely, it says from one rioter, quote, once we found out Pence turned on us and that the election, uh, they had stolen the election, like officially, the crowd went crazy. I mean, it became a mob. We crossed the gate from a second rioter. Then we heard the news on Pence and lost it. So we stormed. So let's just remember there are criminal penalties for inciting violence. But bottom line, the committee has laid out here a direct line from Trump's tweet about Pence to more violence. Jamie, are you hearing anything from Ivanka Trump or her team about this letter? Uh, Is there any suggestion she will cooperate? Right. So we've just gotten a statement. We do not know if she will cooperate willingly. Her spokesman did not address that. But we did get this statement. Ivanka Trump just learned that the January 6th committee issued a public letter asking her to appear. As the committee already knows, Ivanka did not speak at the January 6th rally. But, Jake, we do know she was there. As she publicly stated that day at 3.15 p.m., quote, any security breach or disrespect to our law enforcement is unacceptable. The violence must stop immediately. Please be peaceful. I would just point out that none of that addresses the points that the committee lays out in the letter that they want to talk to Ivanka Trump about. Mm. I also uh, remember uh, she referred to American patriots uh, when she was talking to the the, uh, the the mob. Right. And then someone clearly said something to her and she deleted that tweet. Yeah. They're, they're storming the Capitol. They're trying to overturn the election. Right. Maybe that's not so patriotic. Jamie Gangel, thanks so much. Appreciate sure. it. Great reporting. After last night's defeat, a possible path forward on some form of election reform coming from Democrats and Republicans today. We'll tell you what it is next. In our politics lead today, new momentum on election reform, just not what Democrats tried and failed to get through the Senate last night. Instead of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, there is now a bipartisan effort to change the Electoral Count Act of 1887. That law is archaic and confusing. And on January 6th, after the presidential election, lawyers for Donald Trump tried to exploit it. They told then-Vice President Mike Pence he could use the Electoral Count Act as a reason to reject the election results from seven states. And, of course, there was no constitutional ability for him to do so, but the law was vague enough. There is concern on Capitol Hill. Let's bring in two former members of Congress, Republican Mia Love of Utah, Democrat Joe Kennedy of Massachusetts. Uh, Congressman, let me start with you. Just this past Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, you tweeted, quote, no celebration without legislation. There has not been any legislation as of now. Do you think changes to the Electoral Count Act could be enough to satisfy some advocates, at least, pushing for uh, reform to voting rights? I don't think it's going to be enough, Jake. I mean, look, I think it's an absolute first step, and I think it needs to happen, right? I I think we should all be able to agree that, uh, particularly when it comes to votes after vote counting, after the votes have actually been cast, that there needs to be 
a strong process to maintain the integrity to make sure that whoever won the election won. And that's what this reform effort is is aimed at trying to ensure the integrity of that process. That is a critical step and a necessary step. But just because you ensure the integrity of an election doesn't give you a pass for not being able to ensure the expansion of a franchise here across the United States. And again, the basic principle here is that every person in this country should be able to, uh, every competent person in this country should be able to cast their ballot. Every legal and citizen. Be trying to, yes, 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 yes. Thank you. But we should be trying to make sure that people that have the ability um, and the, the legal requirements to vote should be able to do so. And that's what these bills are, are uh, intending to do. Um, and that shouldn't be as partisan as, unfortunately, it's become. So Congresswoman aides for Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell say that he misspoke uh, when he was asked about Democrats trying to get legislation passed on, on election reform. Uh, let's, let's play what he said that he is, uh, what his staff is saying he misspoke about. What's your message for voters of color who are concerned that without the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, they're not going to be able to vote in the midterm? Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. A recent survey, uh, 94% of Americans thought it was easy to vote. Uh, This is not a problem. In point of fact, I I don't think it's accurate to say that African-American voters are voting in as high a percentage as white Americans. But what people took umbrage at is that he said African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. Um, What was your reaction when you heard that? And is that revealing, as critics of McConnell say, of a mindset where white Americans are Americans and African-Americans are African-Americans? Look, I've always said uh, that we, all of us collectively, and I agree with um, my former colleague, uh, Joe Kennedy, that we should do everything we can to give as many people access, as many as many places to access voting as they possibly can. And we've got a lot of work to do in, in the country. And what's really uh, frustrating to me is that leader after leader is just sowing these little seeds of um, doubt in our electoral process. It's now more than ever, we need people to step up to the plate and say, this is how we're going to make sure that the electoral process is secure and people can have confidence in it. We've got a lot of work to do, obviously. Um, and I think that these leaders really need to just step up to the plate and do what has to be done instead of playing this blame game back and forth and scaring the American people. And Congressman, former Senator David Perdue, he's running for governor against the incumbent Republican governor, uh, Brian Kemp. Today, uh, Perdue proposed creating an election police unit that would enforce election laws, investigate election crimes, and fraud. This follows the lead of Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, I should note the Department of Justice found no evidence of widespread voter fraud under the Trump administration, Attorney General Bill Barr and others. Is there a need for an election police unit? No, there's not. Um, To your point, Jake, this is a solution in search of a problem when, in fact, what you are seeing, shrinking the ability of the American electorate to be able to cast their ballot, that is election suppression. What this is meant to do is clearly intimidate others that are trying to actually cast their ballot. And there's absolutely no reason for it, no basis for it, and it should stop. Uh, and Congresswoman, I, I should know Utah, your home state, it's all vote by mail. Obviously a very Republican yeah. state. So why are so many Republicans in other states unwilling to make it so easy to vote? Doesn't seem to have had any effect on, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the most diverse state in the nation, but, but it doesn't seem to have had uh, much of an effect on electing Republicans in Utah. 
Well, I think it's because there are so many people that are worried about their narrative, what other people are going to say about them versus what is right for the American people, the people that they're closest to. And I have to say, just recently, Davis County clerk invited people to come in and show them the process, say, this is what we're doing. This is vote by mail. Do you have any input? So, I mean, these are, this is the thing that people should be doing and stop worrying about themselves, worry about what's good for the American people. All right. Thanks to both you, Congresswoman Love, Congressman Kennedy. Good to see both of you. Coming up next, Dr. Fauci. She just said, what parents of children under five have been waiting a long time to hear. Stay with us. In our Health Lead Today, hospitalizations and deaths in the United States continue to tick up from the Omicron variant. And the vast majority of those straining the healthcare system are made up of people who have refused the life-saving vaccine. As President Biden uh, pivots from this summer's triumphant tone of saying that the virus has been beaten, to this. Some people may call what's happening now the new normal. I call it a job not yet finished. But as CNN's Omar Jimenez reports, it's not all bad news. Kids under five could get vaccinated sooner than we thought. There's an air of cautious optimism in parts of the country when it comes to COVID-19. In New York City and other parts of New York State and in New Jersey, It has already peaked and is rather dramatically on its way down. We're seeing that also in bigger cities, such as Chicago. In Chicago, health officials announced it's past its Omicron peak, despite numbers still being high in the city and statewide. Over the same period, ICU and ventilator usage has started to decline. I want to be clear. I am cautiously optimistic about this decline, but there are an awful lot of people still battling for their lives in hospitals across Illinois. But it's not just Illinois. Nationwide, COVID-19 deaths are up from a week ago, with the Midwest, West, and Southeast still seeing rising cases over the past two weeks. Hospitalizations are at an all-time high. It seems that because Omicron in general appears to be a milder disease versus the Delta, We're still having a lot of hospitalizations because a lot of people are being affected just by the sheer numbers. But the numbers would be higher if not for vaccinations. So far, almost a third of the country is fully vaccinated and boosted. And Dr. Anthony Fauci is signaling those under five may get their shot within a month. But testing remains an issue as the Biden administration officially launches its website to order free at-home tests. Some states claiming this federal push is taking tests away from them. Our vendors called us late Friday to say that uh, the White House's announcement on Friday had frozen all the orders and that they were taking all of the tests that were going to go to us in the other states. The Biden administration pushed back, telling CNN manufacturers may be overpromising and blaming the federal government when they come up short. Now, we've seen many challenges to vaccine mandates here in the United States, but in Austria, the country just passed a law requiring everyone 18 or older to get a vaccine for a coronavirus shot or you face a fine. That, of course, they say is to prevent a fifth COVID lockdown amid a similar surge in Omicron-driven coronavirus. It's what we've seen here in recent weeks, Jay. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Let's get right to CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Dr. Gupta. Sanjay, why has it taken so long for the FDA to approve shots for kids under five? 
It, this is a this is a dosing thing primarily. Just trying to figure out the right dose. Uh, this looks like it's going to end up being a three dose vaccine right out of the gate. Remember, this was back and forth on the adults. Uh, whether it was going to be two or three doses. This looks like it's going to be three doses. It's primarily really um, kids between the ages of two and, and five where they're trying to get the dosing right. It looks like they've kind of gotten the immune response they want in younger children, but I think it's that, that older age group, uh, again, between two and five. One thing to point out as well, at times when there's a lot of virus circulating, it's easier to do these studies because you can, you can get enough patients to actually figure out, is the vaccine working? So over the summer, you know, in, in the early fall, not as many cases. Now there's enough of a population to really study. So, you know, they said uh, second quarter of 2022, uh, sort of in the fall of last year, it's looking like that's what's, what it's going to be still. For a while, it looked like it might come sooner, but it's still looking like, you know, second quarter, next couple months before we get an approval. I want to get your reaction to what President Biden said yesterday about the spike in cases, hospitalizations and deaths not being what he wants people to think of as the, quote, new normal, um, rather a job not yet finished. This past summer, Biden declared we were, quote, beating the virus. Um, What happened? Hmm. Well, you know, it's it's the virus. Obviously, the numbers are very different now. On July 4th, when he said that, let me show you sort of the trajectory of, of where we were in the country at that point. We were around sort of the, the lowest point. Uh, and if you look at the overall trajectory, it was around 13,000 cases. Now, you know, 59 times higher, hospitalizations close to 10 times higher, and deaths close to eight times higher. A couple things happened. Um, Delta was already the dominant sort of strain at that time going back to July 4th. But again, there was around 13,000 cases a day. So it was the dominant strain, but it wasn't that significant. I think two things happened. One is that it became much more dominant Delta, and then obviously we've seen what's happened with Omicron. But I think a little bit more subjectively, Jake, there was such an emphasis, understandably, on vaccines that I think a few other things sort of fell off a bit. Uh, Masks, which we're now hearing about, people are gonna get masks in the mail, N95 masks, which are the most protective. I think um, uh, testing overall, we've not had enough data uh, at any point to really guide some of the decisions. We saw Provincetown, people were told they didn't need to wear masks even you know, at that point, turns out they did. And then therapeutics, Jake, something you and I talked about last week, have vaccines, but need therapeutics as well. Those things will end up making a difference. All right, Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the former head of the Catholic Church, the Pope reacts to a new report that he allegedly tried to cover up child sex abuse when he was younger. Stay with us. In our world lead, an extensive and rather damning report commissioned by the Catholic Church itself finds that retired Pope Benedict knew that priests were abusing children when he was Archbishop of Munich, but he refused to act. Pope Benedict's spokesperson says he has not read the 1,000-page report yet and adds Benedict, quote, as he has many times during the years of his uh, time as Pope, expressed his pain and shame for the abuses of minors. CNN's Vatican correspondent Delia Gallagher of Live Voice of Rome. Delia, give us a sense of the scale of this investigation. Well, Jake, uh, the report is over 1,800 pages. It spans a time period of 70 years in the Archdiocese of Munich. It took two years to compile, which is why in the initial responses from Pope Benedict and the Vatican, they say we need time to look into these findings because they've just received the report today. Um, importantly, you know, just to give you an idea of one of the cases of the four in which Pope Benedict 
is uh, implicated for mismanagement, just one of those cases runs to 370 pages. So obviously there still needs to be um, a thorough sort of response to what the findings are, what exactly is involved in the mismanagement on the part of the Vatican and on the part of uh, the Pope Emeritus. The other important player in this is uh, the current Archbishop of Munich, Cardinal Marx, who is a close friend and advisor to Pope Francis, who's the man who called for the report in the first place. He is also implicated uh, for mismanagement in two cases. He has said he will respond next Thursday uh, to these findings. So we're still in a developing stage of this story, but uh, one important aspect is this report was requested by the Catholic Church in Munich uh, with the awareness, of course, that the records of Pope Benedict and uh, the Cardinal Cardinal would be scrutinized. So now they have the findings, and now we wait and see what they say about it. Jake? If anything, Delia Gallagher in Rome, thank you so much. Appreciate it. President Biden now says any Russian movement across the Ukrainian border will be considered an invasion. Will that do anything to lower the temperature? We're going to talk to a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Republican Senator Joni Ernst, next. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, an Olympic fortress. We're taking a close look at how China is trying to keep thousands of elite athletes free from COVID in one of the most densely populated cities in the entire world. Plus, building back in pieces. President Biden says he's willing to break up his massive $1.8 trillion Build Back Better bill into smaller chunks. Are progressives on board? We'll ask the chair of the House Progressive Caucus. And leading this hour, that's not what he meant. The White House and the president himself trying to clean up comments yesterday in which he appeared to give Russian President Vladimir Putin the green light for what Biden called a, quote, minor incursion into Ukraine. The president clarifying today or attempting to do so, saying Russia will face a heavy price if it invades Ukraine. And as CNN's Kylie Atwood reports for us now, those comments follow a rather scathing rebuke from Biden's ally, the Ukrainian president. Any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. President Biden cleaning up his comments from Wednesday, suggesting there may not be hard-hitting consequences for Russia if they undertake in a minor incursion into Ukraine instead of a full-blown invasion. It will be met with severe and coordinated economic response that I've discussed in detail with our allies, as well as laid out very clearly for President Putin. Coming after he said this just a day before. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having to fight about what to do and not do, etc. The initial comments left Ukrainian officials stunned, believing Biden gave President Putin the green light to enter Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky saying, quote, there are no minor incursions in small nations, just as there are no minor casualties and little grief from the loss of loved ones. Top Biden administration officials have been scrambling to clean up the comments. If any Russian military forces move uh, across the Ukrainian border and uh, commit new acts of aggression against Ukraine, um, that will be met with a swift, severe, united response from the United States and our allies and partners. Secretary of State Tony Blinken wasn't alone. 
America's European allies also tried to present a united front to intimidate Russia. NATO allies are ready to respond. Be in no doubt that if R Russia were to make any kind of incursion into Ukraine of, of, of any, uh, on any scale, whatever, I think that that would be a uh, disaster. Any further aggressive attitude on the part of Russia would have grave consequences. All this as Russia bolsters its arsenal for a possible invasion, bringing combat helicopters closer to Ukraine this week and using their intelligence services to recruit Ukrainian traitors to prepare a takeover of Ukraine's government. The U.S. now sanctioning current and former Ukrainian officials, the Treasury says are, quote, engaged in Russian government-directed influence activities to destabilize Ukraine. But the Kremlin saying another call between Presidents Biden and Putin would, quote, be welcomed. Meanwhile, President Biden saying he expects Russia to invade. My guess is he will move in. Now, Jake, sources are telling CNN that this week the Biden administration moved to give approval to three Baltic states to provide U.S.-made weaponry to Ukraine. That is one move to ensure that if Russia does invade Ukraine, it is a bloody incursion for Russia. Now, all of this, the conversations about President Biden's remarks yesterday, the actions that the Biden administration is taking this week ahead of a very important meeting tomorrow. Secretary of State Tony Blinken will be meeting with his Russian counterpart, Foreign Minister Lavrov. Jake? Kylie Atwood, thanks so much. Joining us now live to discuss senior, uh, CNN Senior International Correspondent Matthew Chance, who's live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. And Matthew, you have some brand new reporting um, that Ukrainian officials appear to be growing frustrated with the Biden administration, and they want more from President Biden than they're getting. Yeah, that's right. There have always, Jake, been these simmering tensions uh, and frustrations behind the scenes in, in, the, in that relationship. But I think over the course of the past 48 hours or so, uh, those frustrations have really started to boil over. I had a briefing uh, with a senior Ukrainian official uh, this evening, and he called for the United States to really ramp up its efforts now to deter a Russian invasion. He was um, speaking to me by telephone, of course, but he, he's, he's basically expressing frustration that these uh, US threats to impose crushing sanctions on uh, Russia, if it invades, are not having the deterrent effect that the United States uh, and the Ukrainians uh, want them to have. He wants immediate sanctions. This has been reflected across the Ukrainian government. Immediate sanctions to be imposed on Russia, for instance, blocking the opening of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline uh, from, from Russia to Germany in order to punish Russia for its uh, aggressive uh, behaviour. That's the, the words of the, of, the, of the official I spoke to. He said this, if Biden wants to stop the Russian invasion, he must do more. He also spoke about military aid. We heard uh, 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 a bit of detail there in Kylie's report about the kind of weaponry that's being given here. But there's a lot of frustration here in Ukraine being expressed by officials that the pace of military aid from the United States and the NATO allies uh, to Ukraine is much too slow, even though it's been ramped up significantly in recent months. We want patriots the official said, referring to anti-missile batteries that, that, uh, that they're demanding or requiring or requesting uh, from the United States to deliver. With patriots, we might be able to hold off a Russian attack, the official told me, but without them, we do not stand a chance. And so, you know, just, just some of the frustrations being expressed. Of course, in the light of this very rare 
um, public spat, I suppose, uh, public rebuke, if you like, uh, by uh, the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, to his US counterpart, Joe Biden, following those comments about um, uh, the consequences of a minor incursion into his country by Russia. Jake. The NATO Secretary General uh, told CNN today that NATO allies are united. Uh, That was an apparent response to President Biden, suggesting that allies will be split over how to handle uh, Russia, especially if it's a smaller incursion, in his words. How important is it for NATO countries to be on the same page about the threat that Russia poses to Ukraine and to the general region? Well, I I think, you know, from from the point of view, if I can just put on my Moscow hat for a minute, and from the point of view of Russia... um, you know, uh, Russia for many, many years, one of its foreign policy objective has been to try and split the NATO alliance, try and split, split the United States from Europe, try and split European countries from each other because weakened Western institutions, uh, sorry, divided Western institutions are weakened and that plays into the hands of the Kremlin. So look, this is music to Vladimir Putin's ears that there is division over uh, what kind of sanctions may be imposed uh, on Russia if it were to invade in a, in a, in a certain way. Um, and I think, if anything, it raises the chances that Putin may take that big uh, invasion gamble. All right, Matthew Chance, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa. She's a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, also a retired lieutenant colonel in the Army National Guard. Senator, thanks for joining us. So today, President Biden tried to clarify that any Russian forces crossing the border into Ukraine would qualify as an invasion and would merit a, quote, heavy price. Was that clarification, in your view, enough to fix any possible damage done? Well, unfortunately, it is regrettable what he spoke to yesterday about a minor incursion. But I am glad that the White House has corrected that and that there will be swift uh, action should Russia invade into Ukraine. I think we must make this very, very clear that Russia going across sovereign territory lines, a country's lines, is absolutely unacceptable. The Biden administration today also confirmed that it approved the transfer of American weapons from allies in the region to Ukraine. What more do you want the Biden administration to do to discourage Russia from attacking? Well, again, I I do think that this is an appropriate move by the Biden administration. It is a little later than I would have hoped, but at least he is doing that. So I do believe that we need to be outfitting the Ukrainian military with not only defensive capabilities, but also offensive weapons to defend against a possible Russian invasion. We also need very strict, very stiff financial sanctions and penalties against Russia. And we need to do that now. We don't need to wait until they have invaded another country to put those protections in place. But then also one thing that we need to think about and what President Biden hasn't made clear is what are we going to do with the 10 to 15,000 Americans that reside within the Ukraine? We need to make sure that we are communicating with those individuals and their families so that if something does happen, we can get them out of the country safely. Do you think they should be evacuated now? 
Well, I do think that those discussions need to happen. If they are closer to the border, I think they need to be made aware of the tensions that exist. The unfortunate thing is the State Department has not updated the travel advisory for Ukraine in over a month. Um, so we need to make it very clear to Americans that there are tensions in the area, things are escalating, and if they wish to be safe and their families safe, they need to think about how they get out of Ukraine safely. Um, and again, we need to have those discussions. And the Biden administration has not been uh, engaged in those talks. Your call for the sanctions, the strict sanctions to be imposed on Russia mm -hmm. now, uh, it's not the first time a Republican has come in on right. the show and said that. The counter argument is that Putin needs to be given an off-ramp out of this conflict and that if those sanctions are imposed now before he invades, that would be needlessly provocative, that would, that would push him to invade. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Well, Jake, that argument, I would say that by the time Russia invades, it is going to be shock and awe, and many, many lives will be lost. And I would hate to then impose sanctions after we've seen many Ukrainians, possibly Americans, lose their lives in an invasion. I think the best way to handle this is to go ahead and proactively put those sanctions on Russia. He has had months now to back off of the Ukrainian border. He has not done that under threat of sanctions. So let's be proactive and let's make sure we're pushing back against Ukraine because, or against Russia, because again, once he's gone into Ukraine, lives will have been lost. And I hate to be on that side of history. So in his press conference yesterday, President Biden uh, had some strict, uh, rather harsh criticism uh, for Republicans. Take a listen. I did not anticipate that there'd be such a stalwart effort to make sure that the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. Think about this. What are Republicans for? What are they for? Name me one thing they're for. So Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has said he does not feel that uh, Republicans need to present an agenda to the country um, and generally speaking, I understand the politics. Midterms tend to be referenda on the people who are running the country. But what are three things that Republicans will do uh, if you recapture the Senate in the midterms? Well, I think that Republicans stand for a strong, free, and prosperous nation. And so, uh, one, we need to tackle the issue of inflation. Biden is facing a 40-year high with the inflation rate, and Iowans and all Americans are feeling those pressures. So alleviating those pressures on our families would be uh, job number one. COVID as well. We need to make sure that American families have access to testing, um, but certainly we want to make sure that they are getting their children back into school and that their workplaces are, are safe and they can return to work. Um, and then as well, we need to, to focus on uh, additional things like uh, you know, foreign relations with our allies, because obviously with national security, we are under a lot of pressure right now. So Republicans believe in peace through strength. I certainly believe that bolstering our military, but also making sure that we're using all of the other tools in our toolboxes to repair uh, fractured relationships with other nations, engaging in trade, all of those things. That's what Republicans stand for. That's what I stand for. There's a lot of work that we can do. And, and 
and certainly we can do much better than many of Biden's first-year failures. All right, Republican Senator Joni Ernst of the great state of Iowa, thank you so much. Thank you, Jake, very much. Coming up, will Ivanka Trump keep it all in the family? The January 6th committee sends Donald Trump's daughter a letter asking her to voluntarily talk to them. That story is next. And the stunning discovery at the bottom of the ocean that could impact how scientists examine climate change. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead now. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol today officially asked for testimony from Ivanka Trump, the former First Daughter's team, confirming that they saw the request this afternoon, but not saying if Ivanka Trump plans to cooperate with the bipartisan committee. Here to discuss, former federal prosecutor Shan Wu and former advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, Olivia Troy. Olivia, let me start with you. Do you think Ivanka Trump will voluntarily cooperate with the committee? She did try to get her father to call off the mob that day. Um, She clearly cares about her reputation. What do you think? Like, I think she knows completely 100% the truth of what happened. But I do think that at the end of the day, it's going to come down to protecting the Trump family name. And I don't don't think that she'll cooperate willingly. I think she'll wait for a subpoena, um, maybe for some top cover. But I don't even know that she'll come forward even after receiving one. Shan, Ivanka is the first Trump child to be asked to testify in front of the committee that we know of. What does that tell you about where the investigation is right now? I would imagine the children would be among the last people they go to, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, no, I think you're right, Jake. Uh, When you are approaching the kind of centerpiece of an investigation, you ideally would like to know everything else first. So by starting more at the outer reaches of it, they can come to these important witnesses knowing what those witnesses should know, and it's easier to confront them and ideally leverage them ahead of time into trying not to deceive or to hold anything back. Olivia, in that letter sent to Ivanka Trump, the committee released a very interesting text message exchange between Trump loyalist uh, Sean Hannity uh, and then White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany. Uh, it said, suggests that Hannity texted Kayleigh McEnany on January 7th, the day after the insurrection, laying out a five-point approach for talking to then-outgoing President Trump. He started with, one, no more stolen election talk. Two, yes, impeachment and 25th Amendment are real and many people will quit, to which Kayleigh McEnany responded, love that, thank you, that is the playbook I will help reinforce. Hannity, according to these messages, also told McEnany the White House staff should try to keep Trump away from certain people. He texted her, quote, key now, no more crazy people, to which McEnany responded, yes, 100 percent. We should note that Sean Hannity's show was a major place where these election lies were told. In fact, they're being sued as a result. And Kayleigh McEnany is one of the biggest election liars that we know. Um, So what's your reaction when you see this conversation, this private conversation? Well, it's stunning, right? It's stunning to see this full-on evidence of these types of conversations that were happening in the lead up to January 6th, but even more so, just the fact that they knew the gravity of the situation. They knew the repercussions of the possibility of what would happen and continuing down this narrative. And then even more egregious is that now they've doubled down on it, right? And the problem is, not only do, does this narrative still exist out there, the big lie lives on, 
it's being used by people who are seeking public office this year. I mean, it's become sort of the Republican Party's platform is really, really the big lie and you have to support it or you're going to get kicked out. And I think that, you know, I think it's important to get this evidence out there to the American people so that they can see that in the lead up in that situation with Donald Trump, people knew people knew that this type of action was worthy of impeachment. It was worthy of the 25th Amendment, that these are actual discussions happening with people like Sean Hannity. Yeah. Uh, Shan, does, let, let me play a little clip of, of uh, Kaylee McEnany on Fox during that era, uh, just to, to give you an idea of, of, of how much baseless nonsense she just she put out uh, in the public sphere, but paid for by your tax dollars, by the way. For President Trump to be ahead as far as he was at 3 a.m. in these four states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, and for the vote to swing by as much as it did, the probability of that in one state is one in one quadrillion. I mean, complete nonsense. That analysis uh, is based on the idea. It doesn't even take into account that Democrats overwhelmingly voted by mail and Republicans overwhelmingly voted that day. I mean, it's just sheer, utter crap. Does the fact that privately she seemed to be acknowledging that this stolen election stuff was not true, Shan, and the fact that she was acknowledging, seemed to be acknowledging to Sean Hannity that there were crazy people in Trump's sphere that were pushing this, does that make her legally liable in any way? I think it can, Jake. I mean, if anyone is going to be held legally liable at a criminal level than those who had an awareness that they were pushing falsehoods and took active steps to make those falsehoods come true, such as the election is bad and should be overturned, they certainly could face criminal liability. I think the question here is obviously we're on kind of untested turf. And one issue is in the past when people contest elections, it's usually through courts. They're asking for recounts, etc. Here, there's a very obvious common sense line that's been crossed, which is people know that they're lying about it, and yet you're trying to use government to make that lie have an effect. That's really kind of new ground. And although it certainly feels criminal, I think the evidence may likely be there. It's a tough call for the prosecutors because it's not the typical kind of corruption they see. But at least to me, it sure is corruption. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, Olivia, the Fulton County, Georgia district attorney is investigating former Tr- President Trump's attempts to overturn the election results, and they've requested a special grand jury. Olivia, do you think that there will ever be, in any real sense, any accountability for Donald Trump for what he did when it came to trying to undermine the, the election and democracy? I mean, we can only hope. We can only hope that this continues to work through the court system, that that he gets held accountable personally. I mean, he the dereliction of duty displayed on January 6th, and not only, I would say, probably in many instances, while he was in office in various scenarios, was grave. And look, this is this what this has what has happened here has led to additional consequences here. Right. This this narrative continues to undermine our democracy on a daily basis. All right, Olivia, Shan, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. After President Biden opened the door to a smaller Build Back Better bill, Senator Joe Manchin today did not commit. How do progressives feel about it? We'll talk to the chair of the House Progressive Caucus next. There's no question last night was a disappointment. 
I support what the president said. He's disappointed, but not deterred. So the fight goes on. Fight goes on in the politics lead. That was Speaker Nancy Pelosi today reacting to Senate Democrats failing to change Senate rules to get two bills on election reform passed. All Republicans voted against both bills. So what is next for Democrats? CNN's Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill. Manu, there, there still might be another chance at election reform, right? And this version involves of all things, Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, that's the re- overhauling the 1887 Electoral Count Act. Now, that is much different than what Democrats have been pushing. They had been pushing efforts to ease access to ballots that could affect the elections in this election, potentially 2024 elections, affect how House lines are redrawn, so dealing with campaign finance disclosures. Those issues are now set aside after Democrats failed to get any Republican support to overcome a filibuster. They couldn't convince two of their members to change the Senate filibuster rule. So as a result, that's set aside. Now the focus is on how to deal with the process for counting electoral votes that have been certified by the states when Congress meets after a presidential election in a joint session to essentially to count those votes. We saw Donald Trump try to get Mike Pence as the vice president to discard those electoral votes. We saw Republicans object and try to overturn some of those states. Now the Democrats and Republicans are talking about tightening up those standards, making it much harder to do just what Donald Trump had wanted to do. There is support for it, Jake, but there's still going to be some time to get consensus on this. And negotiations are expected to take a, a matter of weeks before they get to any sort of proposal. Emanu, President Biden yesterday sounded quite willing to scale back his Build Back Better Act in order to get it through the Senate. You caught up with West Virginia conservative Democratic or moderate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin today. Uh, Is he on board with a Build Back Smaller? Well, he set a very high bar to getting even chunks of this plan through. As Joe Biden said, he's open to getting chunks through. Well, Joe Manchin simply said that he has not had any discussions recently with the White House. And he said his last offer, Manchin's last offer that he put on the table in December, simply is not there. At that point, he was talking about $1.75 trillion. But right now, he said, quote, we're starting from starting from scratch. He said that it'll be a, quote, clean sheet of paper to move ahead. And I asked him where, where he needs to be on this. He said, first, they need to deal with inflation. Then you need to deal with COVID. And then we need to get our fiscal house in order before we move ahead. So, Jake, getting to a deal with Joe Manchin is going to be incredibly difficult as we get closer and closer to the election as well. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal. She is chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Let's start where, where Manu just ended. Senator Manchin, um, one of the Democratic moderates in the Senate who, who held up the change of the filibuster um, that would have gotten the election reform bills passed. He, he's unwilling to say if he would support a scaled down version of Biden's Build Back Better plan uh, without the child tax credit. Uh, Manchin said from the beginning, possible annual extensions to that child tax credit would, would hike up the bill's price tag. Would you support a bill that doesn't contain it, but does have other provisions in that bill, universal child care, the climate change provisions, a plan to lower prescription drug prices? Well, Jake, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me on. You know, the Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsed the framework that Senator Manchin 
had agreed to back in October, uh, end of October, that the president unveiled. And as you may know, that framework only had one year of the child tax credit because Senator Manchin has been clear from the beginning that he didn't support the, the child tax credit, unfortunately. Um, and so we still believe that a deal that is very close to that framework is exactly possible. He has been, to his credit, consistent about what he is willing to support. Going back to several months ago when I first met with him, and he was pretty much in the same place uh, as he has been all along. He supports universal pre-K. He supports child care, um, where no family pays more than 7%. He has supported the housing provisions. He has supported elder care. He has supported the subsidies for health care so that uh, we can continue to make sure Americans get affordable health care, especially in this crisis. And he supported the climate provisions as changed in that framework. Not the original thing, but so this is in many ways, this was Senator Manchin's bill. And I think we should go back to that framework and recognize that for all of the pushing that we have done to try to get him on some other things that we put into the House bill, the reality is that framework is what Senator Manchin wanted. And I believe that we can still get that done. And yes, we would, we endorsed it. We would vote for that framework as it is. I, I guess what I'm asking, though, is that he's obviously not committed to that framework anymore. Um, and would you accept a bill that is, I don't know what the percentage is, but let's say 80 percent of, of what you want? Biden also said his plan for free community college might also need to be taken out of his Build Back Better plan. His, he's literally married to a community college professor. That's something that's near and dear to his heart. Would you be able to deal with a bill? I mean, is there room here to talk about something other than what the deal that you cut that obviously I know many progressives feel that they were betrayed, but wouldn't something be better than nothing? Yeah, I mean, look, we're continuing all of those discussions. But again, I would just say on the community college piece, remember, that was not in the framework because, again, that was something that Senator Manchin didn't support. We all wanted it to be in the framework. There were some things, I think this is the thing that may be confusing. There were some things we put into the House bill that we passed off the floor that were not the same as what was in the framework. And so um, we are going to get as much as we can get done, done. We are not going to draw red lines in the sand. We are going to fight to keep it as close to that framework as possible, because I think that that is what he has been very consistent about. And the president is right. You know, I remember him saying to us, I'm going to have to go home and tell Jill I, I couldn't get community college done. We will fight that on a different day. But absolutely, Jake, we are not going to throw away a chance to get these big, important pieces done like child care, pre-K, right. um, you know housing, climate. These are big transformational changes that uh, we believe we can still get done. Well, right. I mean, Bill Clinton, I, th I think, said something along the lines of just let Joe Manchin come forward, offer his version of the Build Back Better Plan, Build Back Better Plan pass that, pass it in the House, get it on the desk, campaign on that. Look at all these big things, reduction in prescription drugs, pre-K, uh, health care subsidies, all, all the things you just talked about. And then you can run again on things you want to put back, you know, other things you want to do. Why isn't that just happening? I, I don't understand. I, I, I think that that is what's going to happen. I think there was just a turn to voting rights, which was very, very important. 
And so this sort of got left off the table. But that is actually what happened with that, uh, with the things I mentioned, with the framework. That was Senator Manchin's plan. We gave him the pen and we said, OK, you write it. And um, that's what we have. And I think that's still what we can get done. It won't be the House bill that we passed, but it will be, I think, very, very close to the things he's already said that he would support and that we endorsed back in October. Biden uh, was asked yesterday about his campaign promise to cancel $10,000 in student loans, uh, not total per person. He had that question. Never really answered uh, uh, the question. Um, If it doesn't get done, do you expect your party will suffer consequences? Are a lot of young people excited about $10,000 in college loan debt being canceled? Well, this student debt cancellation is really important, both for the economic recovery and for people. And by the way, the fastest growing demographic of people with student loans, Jake, is seniors. So on fixed income. So this is something that affects the country at large. And it also has a deep impact on racial equity, which is something the president has said is is uh, so important to him and racial wealth. And so I think um, we will get something done on that. I think uh It's not really that any one thing is going to stop people from coming out, but we do just have to recognize the crises that people face and recognize that the more that we can deliver, the more we have a story to tell that keeps people in the game and believing that their vote matters, uh, which it does. But we need to show them that they delivered us the House, the Senate, and the White House. And now look at all the things we've accomplished. We've got a good first year. We need to have a good second year, really a second six months. And um, we need to be able to show people that we are mm-hmm. delivering for them so that they're waking up feeling better about their lives and opportunities. Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thanks so much. Good to see you again. They didn't build a wall, but China built an Olympic fortress to try to keep COVID out. That's next. In our sports lead, the International Olympic Committee is expecting nearly 3,000 athletes to descend upon China's capital, Beijing, in the next two weeks. CNN's David Culver now takes a closer look for us at how one of the world's most densely populated cities is hoping to protect Olympians from the COVID pandemic. Traveling into Beijing may prove to be a tougher race than an Olympic competition. These winter games taking place in a capital city that increasingly feels like a fortress. China determined to keep out any new cases of COVID-19, starting at the airport. This is the terminal that's going to be used by athletes, some of the Olympic personnel and media arriving into Beijing. They've got a wall up that keeps the general population away from everyone who's part of the Olympic arrivals. Those coming in required to download this official app to monitor their health, inputting their information starting 14 days before arriving in Beijing. While health surveillance and strict contact tracing is part of life for everyone living in China, it's making visitors uneasy. Cybersecurity researchers warn the app has serious encryption flaws, potentially compromising personal health data. China dismisses concerns, but Team USA and athletes from other countries are being advised to bring disposable burner phones instead of their personal ones. From the airport, athletes and personnel will be taken into what organizers call the closed-loop system. Not one giant bubble, so much as multiple bubbles connected by dedicated shuttles. Within the capital city... There are several hotels and venues, plus the Olympic Village, that are only for credentialed participants. The dedicated transport buses will be bringing the athletes, the personnel, the media, 
through these gates. But for those of us who are residents outside, well, this is as close as we can get. Then there are the mountain venues on the outskirts of Beijing, connected by high-speed train and highways, all of them newly built for the Winter Games. So as to maintain the separation, even the rail cars are divided, and the closed-loop buses given specially marked lanes. It is so strict that officials have told residents if they see one of the vehicles that's part of the Olympic convoys get into a crash to stay away. They've actually got a specialized unit of medics to respond to those incidents. It's all to keep the virus from potentially spreading. It also helps keep visiting journalists from leaving the capital city to other regions like Xinjiang or Tibet to explore controversial topics. With the world's attention, the Olympics allows China to showcase its perceived superiority in containing the virus, especially compared with countries like the U.S. But this will, in many ways, also be a tale of two cities, one curated for the Olympic arrivals and pre-selected groups of spectators, another that is the real Beijing. Though some local Beijing residents are now in a bubble of their own. Communities locked down after recent cases surfaced in the city outside the Olympic boundaries. A mounting challenge for a country that's trying to keep COVID out and yet still stage a global sporting spectacle to wow the world. And that really is the biggest challenge, Jake. This desire to portray an open, welcoming host city. But the optics of barriers throughout the city, well, they say otherwise. And locals here can tell you they're happy to keep their distance, especially with health officials claiming that the recent cases that we've seen here are imported. It adds to the fear that anyone coming in from outside China might be carrying COVID with them. And under these incredibly strict zero COVID measures, one case in your community, it can make your life miserable here for weeks or months, Jake. All right, David Culver in Beijing, thank you so much. Why the discovery of this coral reef could change what we think we know about climate change. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series today, a rare and incredible find off the coast of Tahiti, a previously unknown coral reef believed to be in pristine condition, stretching for nearly two miles. It's one of the largest coral reefs ever discovered. And as CNN's Renee Marsh reports, scientists say this discovery illustrates why so much more needs to be done to explore the world's oceans. Here, off the coast of Tahiti, a stunning discovery. Resting up to 230 feet below the surface was this, a huge, untouched, rose-shaped coral reef nearly two miles long. Researchers on a United Nations-led scientific mission discovered it diving near the depths of the ocean known as the Twilight Zone, 100 to more than 200 feet below the surface where there's just enough light to sustain life. That's where they found one of the world's largest coral reefs, appearing unaffected by climate change, stunning since warming waters have wiped out nearly half of the Earth's known reefs. And over the next couple of decades, there will be a 90% decline according to the latest projections. It shows us still how little we know about our own planet and how important it is to gain more knowledge, to better understand the processes of those oceans that will again influence life on our planet. Norwegian oceanographer Everett Fleer is helping to lead an international network of governments, ocean scientists, industry and volunteers in a mission to map the world's seabed by 2030. The shape of the seabed and how deep it is and the ocean currents, it all influences to a great extent how climate will develop and how climate will change. 
And therefore, if we lack parts of the knowledge on what on which these climate models are based, uh, our climate models are not as good as they could be. It also depends where the currents are. The topography of the ocean floor dictates how currents move warm and cold water throughout the planet, and that impacts climate. Ocean seafloor mapping is critical for precisely predicting and preparing for the climate crisis, melting glaciers, and storm surge. That will allow lots of clever people to use that information to conduct all sorts of science, all sorts of modeling. This mission is underway in various parts of the world, but so far just 20% of the world's ocean floor has been mapped. That's the equivalent of the continent of Asia and Africa, but what still needs to be mapped is almost double the landmass of all of the Earth's continents. It's estimated it will cost three to five billion dollars to complete the mission. The technology exists, but the financial appetite to do it is not robust. Countries, militaries, and private entities like oil and gas companies map areas central to their work at sea, but are not always willing to share the data. The leaders of the Seabed 2030 mission are now calling on everyday citizens. Whether you're a master of a bulk carrier, whether you're a yacht skipper, whether you're a ferryboat captain, then you're in a position to gather data to, to help us chart the seabed. Well, Jake, really anyone with a boat can get involved here by visiting Seabed 2030's website. Now, as for those beautiful coral reefs, researchers hope that they will learn how and why it's been able to thrive despite the climate crisis, Jake. All right, Renee Marsh and our Earth Matters theories. Thanks so much. Sure. Bob Saget's wife sharing details of the very last conversation she had with her beloved husband. That's next. In our pop culture lead, The Widow of the late actor and comedian Bob Saget is opening up about her husband's surprise, shocking death. In an interview today with NBC, Kelly Rizzo shared her final conversation with her husband. I think I said, I love you dearly. And he said, I love you endlessly. And then he said, I said, I can't wait to see you tomorrow. And then, you know, it was just all very, it was just all love. The investigation into his death is ongoing. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.